My guest today is Jeff Hayden, and Jeff is a serial entrepreneur, ghostwriter, speaker, LinkedIn influencer, and contributing editor to Inc. Magazine. His latest book, The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win, challenges the long-held perceptions that motivation leads to success. Jeff, you're very welcome to the show. Jeff, I, I've just finished your book, Motivation Myth, which, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to win. And I was fascinated by it on a number of levels. One is, I guess, like a lot of people, I go through phases where I'm highly motivated and I find it easy to be engaged and in flow. And then there's times where I really struggle. So the title got my attention and I have to say I wasn't disappointed. It was one of those books where I felt I wish I'd read this years ago. That said, it raised a lot of questions for me, which I'd really like to explore with you today. Great. Sounds awesome. You started the book by talking about motivation is not the spark. Perhaps you could share with us a little bit. First of all, why did you write the book and what did you mean by that? <laughs> okay. The main reason I wrote the book is I'm lucky enough because of what I do for Inc. that I get to talk to lots of really successful people. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that process because nobody comes out of the womb primed for success. There is some transition there that makes people succeed at a higher level. And so... You know, I talk to all these people, and the story that I often use is Venus Williams, the tennis player. Clearly, she's an accomplished tennis player, but she does a variety of other things at a really high level. She has a fitness wear company, and she actually does the design work. She runs the company. She has an interior design company. She does a lot of the design stuff. She's getting a master's degree. She's got these things that she does somehow together <laughs> at a really high level. And I said, you know, there had to have been a moment when you saw your future and it hit you like this big lightning bolt and here you go. And she said, no, I just had things I was interested in. Clearly her dad got her and Serena interested in yeah. tennis and helped help them with their development. But she said, I just wanted to get better. That was my whole thing. And she said, you know, I got into design stuff and I thought this is kind of fun. I'd like to try this. I would like to get better. And so I thought about her and then I thought about a lot of the other people that I've talked to and none of them described this lightning bolt moment where every bit of purpose and meaning and determination and drive and willpower somehow hit them and was going to carry them through all the way to some whatever the finish line might be. Instead, they just saw something they were interested in and created processes that would help them get better at that. And so I contrasted that with all the people that write me and talk to me and say, wow, I feel stuck. I, I can't seem to get going. I haven't found my passion. I'm interested in this, but I can't seem to stick with it. And I thought, all those people are waiting for that received motivation. Yes. And the people that succeed create their own. And the way they create it is through that, you create a process where you say, here's what I'm going to do. You make a little improvement. Improvement always feels good. Always feel better when you do something well or you do something better. That makes you feel good about yourself. And that's enough motivation to carry you to the next day. And so if you can create processes to follow that allow you to receive those little doses of motivation and carry you to the next day, that's a self-reinforcing loop that can take you a long way. As opposed to saying, okay, I really want to run a marathon. That's my goal. And now I'm chugging along and it's not very fun and I'm not getting anywhere. And what happened to all that motivation that I thought I had? Yeah, I, that speaks to me because I've been through that process and reading your book, again, a lot of it jumped out to said, so true because I, I ran a marathon 10 years ago and 
there's just not a chance of it. I, I never started out to run a marathon. I started out to run 5K. <laughs> right. I felt like, well, if I can do 5K, maybe I can do 10K. And mm-hmm. then 10 miles and then it just built. And then you get to a stage where you go, you know what? That's now achievable. It's like this fog clearing as you get closer yeah. and closer to the goal. But, and it was something else that, that, I, that I loved in the book was this. Uh, well, if I can interrupt you. Yeah. The, the thing that would have happened to you had your goal been to run the marathon when you first started just trying to say, okay, can I do a 5K? If you'd have cruised along and you'd have gotten to where you were doing, you know, three, four miles, which, you know, three miles is a 5K, but you'd have been doing that distance. You'd have popped your head up and looked and thought, oh, shoot, someday I got to do 26 of these. And that distance from here to there, it's too big and it's insurmountable. And so that's why a lot of people quit because they're cruising along and they look out and they say, but wait, I got to get to there. I'll never make that. That's too daunting. But if your focus, like your focus was, you inadvertently did what I described in the book. You, You had a process to get you to 5K. Then you had one to get you to 10K. But that was your focus. And then you just kept building on that. So yeah. you, were, you focused on the day-to-day, not the six months from now, I need to be able to run 26 miles. Exactly. Because I, I remember in the early days, and I was just out for a run with my brother-in-law. We, we, had, we had not thought about In fact, we, we made a joke. We had just run six miles. Uh, while well, I was. He wasn't. But I was just knackered. I, I, I couldn't go on. And he laughingly joked, he says, you know, Paul, six miles is the bit that you don't train for when you're doing a marathon. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't go any further. And, and, yet, and then when we were maybe around the 14 to 16 mile stage of training, and we run along as a particularly difficult run. It, it felt, I remember we went 14 miles and it, I, afterwards I thought it, that was all uphill. It was so hard. And then the following Sunday, we decided to run back the opposite direction, but do 16. And surprisingly, it was the same route, but it was all uphill. It just felt all uphill. And he said to me, and it, was, it always lives with me, he says, you know, Paul, he says, you could not pay me to do this. And that's what I wanted to explore with you, the, the, that source of motivation. Where does it come from? Because you mentioned something about hitting rock bottom. And I wondered, do you always have to hit rock bottom? to get you to do something big? I think maybe that helps the first time that you try to do something that feels impossible to you because it kind of gets you off whatever rut that you are currently in and it takes you to another place where you've got the mindset of, you know what, why not? But I think once you've done that, like you ran a marathon, you probably can't do that today unless you're still running a lot, but my guess is you probably can't but you carry the lessons from that with you to other things that you do. And you carry that feeling of, wow, this seems really big, but if I do the work, I can get there. And that's a very empowering thing. When you've done something really hard once, you can take that same experience to some other pursuit that may have nothing to do with it in terms of the practical application, but you can say, okay, but I know how this works. It's hard in the beginning. I got to stick with it. If I hang in there through the I want to quit moment, that takes me to this other place and I kind of transcend that. You know how it works and you build up that mental framework that gets you there. And then I don't think you have to hit rock bottom each time in order to start on something big because you can take yourself back and just say, I know how to do this. Yeah. You know, I did, I write about it in the book, but that one year I did 100,000 push ups dumbest thing I've ever done because it was a purposeless goal. There was no meaning to that whatsoever. But part of what I was trying to do was prove to myself 
that a goal doesn't have to have this huge personal meaning in order for you to go do it. But you could just set something and say, you know what? That's what I want to try to do. Here's my process. Can I get there just by doing the work? And I can. And so, you know, I do things now where I'll, I'll get ready to do something or think about doing something and think, wow, that seems really hard. And then I'll think, yeah, but I did a hundred thousand pushups. <laughs> so, you know, I know how to do this. Yeah. And that really does carry forward. So I think rock bottom is helpful the first time, but if you can get that one big achievement under your belt, that's something you carry with you the rest of your life and you get better and better at building processes that help you to succeed. And also you get better and better at that kind of mental you know what? It's just time. It's just effort. I can do that. Yeah. You don't seem to be a huge fan of self-talk. I quote you, I think you call it a happy horseshit (laughs) self-talk. I think it depends on the nature of self-talk. I don't think it helps to look in the mirror and say, wow, I am somebody, I am special, I am great. If you're not great, and if you're not, I'm not special. So if I stood in the mirror and said, I'm special, I'm lying because I'm as average as they come. So that whole thing about talk yourself up, it doesn't work for me because it's an artificial thing that will not help you when you're at mile 14 on the uphill run. That moment that got you out the door, it is long gone and you need something else. So I think the best self-talk is just like the best confidence, you know, you have people that say self-talk will help you with confidence. Mm. I think confidence comes from success and success comes from effort. And so if you put in some work and you get better at something, you don't Mm -hmm. have to be world-class. You just have to be better than you were. And you get better at that. That makes you feel better about yourself. And that is a confidence boost. And you can draw on that experience to say, yeah, I can do this because I've done that. That to me is a self-talk that actually seems rational and reasonable and meaningful as opposed to, you know, I am special if you're not and I'm not. So I like the success thing for it builds confidence and it also is the perfect way to say I can do this because I've done something like that before. Yeah, that was an interesting thing that jumped out of the book for me as well was the idea that particularly in a, in a work environment, that you really, it's not that you shouldn't be, but it's unrealistic to aim to be that, you know, a product of that 10,000 hours of repetition uh, that you can only do that in a very narrow domain. And if you have to be good at several things, A, it's not just unrealistic, it's probably unproductive. And I was curious, just wanted to get your take on that. What, what is your advice to people? You know, when, when is good enough good enough? The generalist versus the specialist is what you said. Um, That's a really good question. And it it varies from person to person. In my own experience, where I fall into a trap is when I start looking for that extra, let's say it's 5%. Like say, and I'll use use a non-work thing, like cycling. I like to ride bikes. I oftentimes get to ride with professional cyclists. It's a humbling experience. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. pros for a reason. And I'll come back and I'll think, wow, if I just worked really, 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 really hard, then I could keep up with them in this place. And then I have to stop and say, yeah, but what's the value in that? What what do I get from that extra 5% of performance? How does that help me in any way in my life other than the ego boost of I kept up with so-and-so? Yeah. And so... 
I think that's a good framework to apply, you know, if it's professional, if you are super at what you do and an extra two or three or 5% of performance is possible, but the effort required to get there derails some other things that you're doing, then I think that's a mistake. And so I much prefer people who get really good, or I think the approach to take, I shouldn't say I prefer people, the approach to take is get really good at something. And then when you're at that point where the effort required to get even better is too large for the benefit, Mm. pick something else you want to get really good at. I love the idea of serial achievement of I'm going to get really good at this and then good. I've got that in my toolkit. Now I'm going to get really good at this. That's in my toolkit. I'm going to get really good at this and it can be personal. It can be professional and you carry all those things with you. Even if you lose a little bit of your capability because you focused on something else, I think generalists in our economy now and in in industry and everything else, generalists are going to win in most cases, unless it's a very highly specialized field, even like programming, if you're a specific, if you've got, if you are the best programmer in a certain avenue right now, three years from now, you won't be because whatever it is you're doing is gone. Yeah. And so the other skills you bring with you go along. So I love the serial achievement thing. And I also like it because it makes your life a lot more interesting. Yeah. So you, know, you can only go down a rabbit hole so far. Well, one of those moments where I had to put the book down on my chest and stare off in the distance for half an hour while I thought about my life was this whole idea you just mentioned of the this serial achiever. This idea you mentioned, you said that you, until recently, you were doing wedding photography as a, as a side, I don't know if it was a side hustle or just a hobby uh, amongst your, your speaking and your writing, writing yep. a role name, writing a ghostwriter and so on. And... I think there's certainly a, a, a perception out there that if you take on several things that are somewhat unrelated to so the photography is unrelated to ghostwriting. I would have, I'm sure you could draw parallels, but um, it, yes. it, it, it dilutes. It's that's the perception that it dilutes or certainly that would be the fear I would have always had that, you know, I've looked at, and again, photography is something I love. And I thought, well, if I go do that as a career straight away, I'm thinking that, okay, I'm doing that. I'm giving this up. And then I go to a process where I go, well, hang on a second. I'm making decent living over here. And do I really want to go through that all over again over here and maybe risk not being as, you know, earning anything like I can do in my current business because that's what I've been doing for so long. And it was, it was really refreshing to actually be told, you know what, you can if you want. Yeah, what happened, to flesh that story out a little bit, I worked in manufacturing for almost 20 years. I ran a plant. I was. I had a. I had built towards that in my career. Everything I did was I wanted to be able to run a plant, and I got there. And I looked around years and thought, "Wow, <laughs> I don't want to do this for another 20 years." My goal. That was my goal. But once I got mm. there, it's like, "Wow, this isn't that fulfilling." So I decided to just switch gears and write. And I kept that job for a while while I built up my writing business. So I did nights and weekends, you know, cause I wasn't sure if it would work. I'm not a jump full. I'm not a jump into the void kind of guy. Right. You know, if you have a family, it's hard to be a jump into the void sure. kind of guy. And so I, the sacrifice was I would have to work nights and weekends on my side hustle mm. to see if I could make something viable out of it. And I realized that I could with a lot of effort but in the meantime, you know, revenue is revenue. And I could make a certain amount from ghostwriting, but not as much as I had been making 
as a plant manager. And so I'd always been interested in photography and I thought, you know, I could probably do some weddings. Mm. So I dove in and tried and it turned out I was good at it. And it turned out that at that time it was a very lucrative profession to be mm. in. I don't think it is now, but at the time it was yep. great. And so I put some effort into that, but I was still ghostwriting, but it, it gave me a nice revenue blend. So mm. that was the real impetus behind it. But then I enjoyed it. And I got to the point where I ghostwriting writing stuff that I was doing fine. It didn't need to be a wedding photographer, but I liked it. And so yeah. I limited the number of events I would do. I kind of picked and chose, you know, if I could tell the couple were going to be a pain in the butt, I, I somehow magically was quote unquote booked for that weekend and didn't make the job but it was really cool but i would run into people that would say oh what do you do and i would say well you know i'm a ghostwriter and they go oh that's interesting and i say and i also do weddings and they'd start to look at me sideways and then i said you know and i do some productivity consulting for some manufacturing plants because i used to do that in the past and then they would look at me really oddly and the impression was always that oh if you're not specializing you must not be very good at any of those and you have to do all those things just to keep afloat because you suck and, and all these things. And I thought, that's not true. Yeah. You know, I'm doing high profile weddings. I got really good ghostwriting clients. You know, I'm working for fortune 500 companies doing productivity consulting. I, this is actually a pretty good gig I got going here. And it made me realize that that narrow thought of I can only do this or else I'm not perceived as successful. That's yeah. so limiting. And my life would have been much more limited had I just said, I only can do one so that people will think I'm successful. Mm. I, one, you shouldn't care what other people think if you're happy. Mm. But two, that would have limited me to some really cool stuff that was not only good for me personally, but was good for me professionally. So I, I think it's awesome when people say, all right, I am this one thing and I'm going to keep doing this, but I would really love to try this too. Even if you don't make another career out of that, you will learn things from doing it that you will take back to your primary that will make you better there. It always happens. Yeah, I, I want, I know, okay, so I'm wondering if you met somebody in, and, and you asked them what do they do for a living, they said, I'm a neurosurgeon and I like to shoot weddings and I like to do this and this and this. Are, are there professions that lend themselves to hyper-specialization that it doesn't fit? And I'm just asking the question because I don't know. I mean, I love oh, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are, but I think it has much more to do with the personality of the person than it does with the specific profession. Because I have a friend that's a lawyer, does incredibly well, and he builds decks on the weekends because right. he loves, and is he making as much money per unit time on those decks as he would if he was doing work? No, not. Yeah. but he loves going outside making something, seeing a physical product at the end that he created, that makes him feel good about himself. And he enjoys the client interaction side too. So it depends. I think it has more to do with what you are interested in. Yeah. And so if you think your life has gotten kind of narrow and it's this endless hamster wheel of do my job, do my personal, get up and do yeah. my job, do my personal, and you want something different instead of a hobby, which hobbies are great, but maybe your hobby could be something that you actually tried to see if you could make some money at or even turn into a profession or who knows. Yeah. But that's, I think we're always more interested in something when we feel like there's a goal. 
Is that what you meant by your chapter? Your chapter was the greater your focus, the lower your chances of success. <laughs> um, in a way, the, the main driver behind that is that if you are constantly thinking about the very end goal, whatever it is, like we'll use the marathon example. If you decide today you want to run a marathon and you are not a runner and that first mile is hard for you, then if you are always thinking about the 26, then you're focusing on this between here and there and that distance is way too freaking big and you're gonna quit. And so to me, your goal, make it as big as you want, then let that goal inform the process you create that will help you get there. And as soon as you have a process set that's pretty much guaranteed to get you there if you do the work, then yeah. forget that end goal and just think about what do I need to do today? And let me do that. And when I've done it, I get to feel good. I don't have to compare myself to the 26 miles. I can compare myself to the mile I was supposed to run today. And if that's what I was supposed to do, I feel good. And then, okay, let's yeah. go to tomorrow. So yeah. that's the, if you're always focused on that big goal and you got a long way to go to get there, it's incredibly discouraging, I think. And yeah. it takes you away from thinking about, you know, the process is everything. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Process is what gets you places. Goals are interesting process gets you places yeah goals is really just about where i want to get to the process is how i'm going to get there and again yeah. i wrote it down here the goal isn't unrealistic it's the process that's unrealistic for a mm -hmm. yeah if you decide you want to run a marathon but you've you know you don't really like to run a lot and you don't like to go outside when it's raining and if it's kind of cold that's not really fun and yeah. you know you don't have the right shoes if yeah, it's funny. There's a, 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 a people do that all the time. Do. Yeah, there's a neighbor of mine who, long time ago now, he's too old for it now, but uh, he actually ran professionally. He ran long distance running. In fact, was in I think it was the Seoul Olympics as a wow. Irish representative. And I see him pass by my window, the window I'm I'm, I'm in front of right now, and. He would be going out for a run in all sorts of weather. This is long before I ever started to run. And I was at his house one night and I said, Jerry, I said, uh, how come? I said, where do you find the motivation just to go out? And, you know, and it was a really squally November's evening. And he said, Paulie says, there's no such thing as bad weather, only weak minds. And it always <laughs> stuck with me. He was so right. He was so yeah. right. And yeah. it's just that. But, but, but even there, something I learned is that there's a process for that, is that you look out the window and it's raining and you don't want to run. Well, forget about that. Just change into your gear. You know, just get up off the yep. couch and put your shorts on and put your yep. jacket on. And just that alone will often give you. And then say, look, okay, I'm not going for 10 miles. I'll just go for two miles and see how it goes. And it's, it's funny that there is even a process for getting through yeah. the, the, those barriers. Well, there's a, I forget his name, but one of the co-founders of Pinterest um, he has this thing for procrastination. If he's putting something off that he should do, but he doesn't want to, usually we put it off because it feels too big or too hard or something. And yeah. so he just says, commit to doing five minutes of whatever it is. Just tell yourself, I'm just going to do five. Yeah. I won't go farther. I'll only do five. You can do anything for five minutes. And invariably, if you start, whatever all that clutter was, goes yep. away and you get going and then you realize why wow, this isn't as bad as I thought. Usually something you put off for a long time, when you finally start it, you sit there and kick yourself and think, why did I put that off? That was, it's not as big of a deal as I made it out to be. This, yeah. You feel good about the fact you're actually doing it because accomplishment feels good. But that's exactly what you're describing with your gear. Yeah. 
You know, yeah. just put my stuff on. Just yeah. go out the front door. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I just run around the block, I'm just going to give it a try. But once you're out, you'll stay out. It's true. It's, uh, something else that really, really, and at some level, it's, it's quite simple, but also deeply profound. It was this idea of, and your quote was, changing behavior is hard, especially when doing something different means saying no to something that you normally do. And then you said, well, how do I say no to myself? And it was this idea of shifting it from saying, I can't do something to, I don't do something. And just that, and again, because <laughs> that is in effect self-talk. When you say, you know, say you're at, for example, I don't eat white bread is rather than right. saying, well, I can't eat it because my diet doesn't allow me. It seems right. disempowering and that's sapping on your willpower where when you say I don't, you're actually taking control. You're, you're empowering yourself and you actually feel stronger to them. And if that sounds weird to people, I, 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 I think it's profoundly uh, valuable and simple, true, but just it helps you break through those moments where you've got to make those choices and I think that was another point you were making a lot of demotivation comes from just not making the choice or maybe taking the wrong choice yeah the the research behind the I can and I don't there's this this group that they the researchers split people up into three groups one group and the goal was to to start and embrace a new fitness habit. So they had 10 weeks and they were gonna see who stuck with it. One group was giving no co given no coping strategy at all. One was told to say whenever they felt their willpower was flagging, I can't miss a workout, let's say that. And then the other one was said was told to say, I don't miss workouts. Yeah. So at the end of this, three out of 10, I think of the people that got no coping strategy, stuck with the habit, they made it. The I don't group, it was like six or eight out of 10. And then the people that were told to say, I can't, only one out of 10 of those stuck with the habit. And the reason is that I can't, and you described it perfectly when you introed this, I can't is a negotiation with yourself instantly. Mm. If it's, I can't eat white bread because I'm on this diet, well, I can, because mm. tomorrow maybe I'll exercise a little more, or tonight I won't eat this instead. And before long, you're negotiating, and we, always, we almost always lose with ourselves when we negotiate. Yeah. Whereas I don't is an identity thing. I don't is my, is who I am. It's yes. not what I'm choosing to do. I don't is who I am. And so if you have kids, you don't have to wake up every day and say, Hmm, I can't neglect my kids today. You don't neglect your kids. You're a parent. <laughs> it's what you do. Yeah. And it's what happens when like, you got to a point, I'm sure when you were training for a marathon where you didn't see yourself as a person who went out and ran every day, you were a runner. That was part of your identity. And so it's much easier to do what you needed to do because you're a runner. If you're a cyclist, you go for rides. If you're a leader, you don't ignore festering problems in the office. You step in and deal with it because that's what leaders do. And so if you can frame things in terms of I don't because this is who I am as opposed to I can't because this is what I'm supposed to be, it's a very powerful thing, and it's not self-talk. I don't think, because you're not saying, I am awesome, I am special, I am something else. You're just saying, you know what? I don't do that, and, mm -hmm. and it's okay. And so I, that one works really, really well. It's surprising how well it works, and it doesn't take very long for that to become part of how you identify yourself, which yeah. is cool too. And then that takes away the willpower that you need because you're no longer making a choice. Willpower is required when you're making choices. 
if you're just doing something because it's what you do, there's no willpower. Yeah, well, I am certainly putting that one into, into practice straight away. Uh, come back from holidays, need to get in shape, all of that. And, and I just thought that, that's it. That's the nugget I've been looking for. I do think language is important, though, because I remember around the time of the marathon that I'd been running for several months. And if anybody asked me about, oh, are you running for the, the marathon? My language would always have been, well, I'm, I'm, I'm training for it or I'm planning on it or I'm thinking about it. And it wasn't until maybe about two months beforehand, I met an old friend for lunch and he asked me, oh, what are you up to? I hadn't met him in a long time. He's, and I, and I, I remember, I never forget, I said, uh, I'm running the marathon in October. And it was the first time those words that came out of my <laughs> mouth were, it, it, they, they were sharp, they were fixed, they were definite. And it was like I'd reached that point where now I was actually convinced of it, where up till that it was, I'm thinking about it. I was giving myself an out the whole time. And I wonder how important that is when it comes to motivation. Where we well, you were actually, what's interesting is that you were actually, maybe you thought you were giving yourself an out, but research shows you were actually also being very smart because there's a whole body of research that says if, like say you decided to run the marathon, and you haven't trained at all, but you mm -hmm. go to a party and there's a bunch of people there and they say, hey, what are you up to? And you say, yeah, I'm going to run the marathon. You know, I'm going to do this and here's what I'm going to, I'm going to be there and you can taste it, you can smell it, you describe it to all these people. They think it's wonderful and awesome and you're a hero. The fact that you did that makes you much less likely to actually run that marathon because you've already gotten a little bit of that emotional boost from the thought of being there. So picturing yourself there Actually, it's that same thing with all the research that shows that planning a vacation is as fun and makes people as happy as actually taking the vacation, <laughs> which is a weird thought, but it's because you can see yourself there. So people will say, I need the peer pressure in order to allow me, you know, so I need to tell people my goal so they'll hold me to it. Don't tell, you can tell them your goal, but what you want people to hold you to is the process. Yeah. So it's not, hey, I don't run the marathon in September you know you say something to me it should be hey check in with me and make sure I did my workouts this week that's yeah. the way you get the peer pressure because it holds you to the process agreed yeah it's like weight watchers the diet is not what makes it successful everybody knows how to lose weight it's having to step up on the scales every week in front of your peers that's what makes it successful yep yeah yep and, and that's the peer pressure part that matters but you can use that in anything that you choose to do but have people hold you to the process that you've created that will get you there. Don't just have them hold you to the end goal because you can negotiate and you can wiggle on that end goal. Yeah. You know, yeah, I haven't started training yet, but I'm really hit it hard next week. I yeah. Right. <laughs> and then you feel like a serial loser when every time yeah. you keep pushing that out. Yeah. Um, you, let's talk about willpower for a moment because you said to gain incredible willpower, need less willpower. What did you mean by that? Um, it's a little bit like if we go back to your example of just putting on your gear to go running. Um, if you like, I work out in the morning. All right. One of my workouts is in the morning. And so I do what lots of people recommend. And when I go to bed at night, I lay my workout stuff right by the bed. It's right there. If I'm going for a ride, tires are pumped up, water bottles on the bike, what, everything is all set so I have the path of least resistance to getting out of the bed and on the bike. And I literally get up, use the bathroom, get up on the bike. Because if I do any other things, I'm much more likely to derail. So if I do that, 
I don't really need much willpower. I don't have to force myself onto the bike because it's just a flow. And mm. so it's a little bit like the choice architecture thing where if your goal is to drink more water and less soda, even though I'm drinking a soda right now, if you put three water bottles on your desk, the easy thing to reach for is water as opposed to if you've got yeah. the soda in the refrigerator downstairs. So that whole thing about if you create a system around you that causes you not to make choices, then it's really, really easy not to need willpower because you don't have to make a choice. So yeah. if you create that environment, if you bring a lunch every day that's healthy and you're yeah. trying to eat better, you don't have to choose where you go to eat, what you have, what's on the menu, what other people are ordering, how do I fit in? You don't have to do any of that. You have what you need and you don't need to exercise any willpower. And it's not perfect, but yeah. it gets you a lot closer. But it's funny you should say that because uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, my wife and I were in Athens. It was our last day on holidays. And I think we'd had lunch maybe, it was a late lunch, 3.30 in the afternoon. And so we weren't in Hungary for a normal dinner time around seven. And so 10 o'clock at night, I was getting hungry. And uh, she said to me, she said, uh, you know, we weren't going to go out and eat at that stage. And she said, well, why don't you phone down for room service? And I just thought, you know what, that's a lot of hassle. <laughs> and now, I know if I, was, if I were at home and I was sitting on the couch and I was hungry, I, I have, what, five or six steps to go to the fridge, take yep. something out, and, and, and it's gone. But because it was just extra hassle, because the temptation was further away and through yep. several layers of, you know, of, of activity I needed to do, just that trade-off just didn't work. And I said, oh, no, screw it. I'll, 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 I'll get breakfast in the morning. Yeah. So, well, it's like, it's like for me, I, in my car, I, have, I always have five or six bottles of water. I have a couple of diet sodas, and I have a box of protein bars. And so if I'm driving somewhere and I get hungry, I like fast food, but I don't really want to eat fast food. And so if mm -hmm. I've got that stuff all the time, I just grab a bar and it makes it easy not to go to a fast food place because yes. I have what I need. And I know people will look at that and say, wow, that's really limiting. You know, you're constraining your life. It's not really fun. Well, I don't see it as that because eating healthy is part of one of the things I want to do and it makes me feel better about myself. And so if I constrain my environment to allow me to do something I want to do, that feels really good. The outcome feels really good. The fact that I didn't have fast food today, that feels good to me. And so constraints can actually make you feel better about yourself if it allows you to do the things that you want to do. I have friends that say, you know, oh, I'm always distracted at work and, you know, I got email and I got whatever. And I'm like, shut it off. Yeah. Turn off your email. Check it every two hours. Don't be tempted. You know, just get rid of the temptation. Get rid of that need to say, oh, I shouldn't check that. Because every time, sooner or later, the decisions that you make, you, you get decision fatigue. You run out of oomph. You run out of willpower. And you do the things that you would choose not to do if you were truly able to make the decision that you want to make. It's so I love constraints for that purpose. Yeah, but it, it is interesting, and I think it's, 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 it's ever more true in today's environment. If I see it when I'm in a class and people have a, a mm -hmm. cell phone and they'll put it face up on the desk. Oh, yeah. I say, just do me one favor. I said, just put it face down. I said, because I know if I'm driving the car and I see that little light go off. You got to check. I, I have to check. You have to check. 
Yeah. And, and it's funny. It's, it's not that, you, you know, 99 times out of 100, it's not an important message, but it's just, nope. it's like. But a, you never know. Yeah, it's just <laughs> going away with you. And if you turn it down and you don't see it, the trigger isn't there. And it, isn't it really a lot about identifying your triggers and eliminating those? Sure. What, one thing I do, this will sound really silly, but let's say I want to ride, let's say I want to do a 50-mile bike ride. Now, there's two ways to go at that. One, if I, and say I don't feel particularly motivated today. Yeah. So I could say, well, all right, I'm going to go out, but you know, I'm not sure if I want to do that or not. So I'm going to do kind of circles close to the house, and that way if I decide to bail, I can just bail. Well, I've automatically set up the possibility that I'm going to bail by doing that. Yeah. What I do is I decide, okay, I'm riding that direction for 25 miles. <laughs> so when I get to the other end, I got to go home. Yeah. <laughs> I can do the 25. You know, if it's yes. 50 I'm worried about, I can do the 25. So I'm just going to ride 25. And then I'll turn around and I'm riding home. And I have no choice. So I don't need any willpower. It's just let's go home. So if you were going to go for a 10-mile run and that 10 seemed pretty hard, go, go five out. Run to five home. You got to come home. That's true. That's true. So you I, home. I know you're going to be impressed, Jeff. I did a hundred mile bike ride last week. Nice. Well uh, done. Well, wait, wait, wait. This is an important piece of information. It was on my Harley Davidson. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I it, love it, motorcycles. It, it, it is so nice. It is nice. Get out and do a hundred miles and have fun. Yeah. That's it, awesome. Yeah, it may not, not have been fitness, but it's good for the head and it's good for the heart. But it's it's funny. It's it's the the, the trip it was more actually. I tell a lie. It was it, it was down to so that's 80, 80 each way. But the trip down was beautiful. Uh, but then I didn't account for the fact the weather was changing and the trip back was not so nice. I didn't. I was. It was my first ride out in a while. But uh, anyway, it's yeah. I I, I am. If you're uh, like me. If you're like me, your tolerance for rain on a motorcycle as you get older has yeah. diminished greatly. A hundred percent, almost to the point where I go, you know what, I'm going to sell this damn thing because there's, there's not enough nice days. But uh, no, because the, the bike ride, the, the, what I would we call a push bike uh, is something that I need to, uh, and again, it's motivation. And, and, and this, so, so here, here was my, well, I started riding bikes because my knees, I couldn't run, very long anymore because no. my knees were not great and i don't i don't want to replace knees i don't want to do yeah. all that and it's bikes are low impact yeah. my knees have never hurt once no matter how far i've gone or how far i've ridden yeah i've never had a knee problem so that was really why i started riding bikes i wasn't interested in cycling i just wanted to stay in better cardio shape and i couldn't really run anymore yeah. and so i thought and i hated that stupid bike for yeah. a good month hated the bike but then I got better. Yeah. I learned a little bit about it. I started to feel good about myself. Now I love it, which I think is a metaphor for how life can be. You can learn to love lots of stuff if you give it a chance. Well, that's really important you said that because I'm at the stage where at the, on the bike, and I'm talking push bike here, my mm -hmm. ass hurts more than my knees hurt when I run. Yep. So I got to push through that. Good seat. Get past that, that, yeah. Get a good Make sure you got a good seat. Make sure you go ahead and go heavy padding on your shorts. <laughs> it's okay, but you will, it will get better. Okay. If I take a break for a while, okay. if I just take like a two month break and don't ride and do other stuff and come back yeah. to the bike, it takes me a while to get used to it again. It doesn't ever, it's a tolerance thing, but it does get better. 
Okay, well, that, that's good to hear. And I'm going to put all of this into practice because it's, 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 it makes so much common sense. A lot of it is, to me, is preparation, like getting your stuff ready the night before. Uh, some of it, uh, well, I guess a lot of it is mentality in terms of what, what story you tell yourself. And, and there's some technique there in terms of I don't versus I can't. So yep. I guess it's like everything in life that it's not, it's not just technique. It's a combination of your behavior, what you do consistently, your attitude, the mindset you bring to it, and, and some technique as well. And that's the recipe for success in, in anything you do. Sure. And I think if I can add one other thing, I think the key whenever you're setting out to do something that is big and challenging you have to set aside that framework that a lot of people bring to it where they say, okay, I would like to, we'll use the marathon again. I would like to run a marathon, but you know, here's how I like to work out and here's how I like my life to go. And here's how I like my day to be. And you throw all your likes into it. And sooner or later, those add up to something that will never allow you to run the marathon because you want to do it your way. And your way is probably not the successful way. Yeah. You have to step back and say, okay, what do people do who have run marathons? How do they train? How do they eat? How do they prepare? All of that stuff. There's a perfectly good wheel sitting there for you to use. You don't have to reinvent it and create this special unique process just for you. Because if you do that, probably what you're doing is you're throwing in a bunch of stuff that will keep you from getting there. And that's why one of my chapters is do what the pros do. Tons of people have done whatever it is that you would like to do. I don't care what the pursuit is. Look at what they do. Actually look at it closely and take a clear eyed view of it and say, okay, that's what that person does. I'm going to do that. You may tweak two or 3% of it for that special Mm. part of you, but the bulk of it, it works. And I don't think that's limiting either. I think that's really empowering because if I know I can do something, I know that if I follow something and it will get me where I want to be, that's awesome. What would you rather do? Spend six months doing something your way and not having any success or spend six months doing something that someone else has done Mm. and feeling pretty sure you're going to succeed. At the end of the six months, I want to be at the success part. I don't want to be at the, I did it my way but I failed part. Who cares? (laughs) I want to be at the success part because that's what feels good. That's what makes you feel better about yourself. And it keeps you from wasting a whole bunch of time. And believe me, I've tried that. I've created my own little special, unique things that were wonderful, you know, because I'm an individual and, and they don't work. (laughs) And if I do something as somebody else does, it's hard. It works. And I like, I like when it works. Yeah. So what you're saying is you don't have to like it. You just have to do it. And if you do enough of it, you learn to like it. It is really funny how that works. Like the push-ups thing we talked about earlier. Yeah. I didn't enjoy push-ups. Who, who enjoys doing 300 push-ups a day? It isn't fun. There's nothing exciting about that. But after a month or so, it's weird, but I kind of liked it. I liked every day I would try to do something different. It would be like, okay, let me do more per set or let me do less reps per set, but I'll rest less in between, you know, and I was playing these little games to see if I could improve it. And it actually got weirdly fun. And the reason why is because I got better at it. And we always enjoy things that we improve on. And so I think you can learn to like all sorts of stuff if you give yourself a chance. And if, if I can add one more thing, I know I'm running long, but the trick is 
And where people fail is if you start something hard and you only give it two or three days and you assess how it's going, invariably you're going to say, this doesn't work. If yes. you want to run that marathon and you go run a mile today and a mile tomorrow and a mile the next day, and then you look and say, wow, am I in any better shape? The answer is, in terms of how you feel, no, you're not going to feel like it's better. You have to give anything new a week and a half or two weeks. You just have to commit to saying, I'm going to do it for that long. And by the time that gets there, you'll have worked through some of the bugs, you'll have worked through some of those early kinks, you'll start to feel and see some improvement. And then you can say, okay, this does work. <laughs> I am on the right track. But yeah. if you only give it a few days and you'll, you will bail because you can't get there. I, I'm trying to learn to play guitar. I've told myself for years I wanted to do that. And I finally started to try. And that first week, I mean, I, I, it, I might as well have been playing with my elbows. It was terrible. <laughs> but I hung in there. And yeah. by the end of the second week, things were starting to flow a little better. I mean, I still suck, but yeah. I can see that I am better than I was and it's kind of fun and it's working and I can see that if I stick with it, I'll get a little bit better and that's really cool. But if you only go for a couple days with something new, don't assess it at that point. Commit to the two weeks and then you can do anything for two weeks. Yeah, but isn't impatience is really the problem here that people are not patient enough with giving it a chance and being comfortable with the fact that you say, you know, you're gonna suck at it maybe for a long time to come. Yeah. Well, that's the problem is that we are, we are a hackier way to success society now. There's that idea that there's a secret shortcut that will cut through all the layers of effort that are required in addition to this other case, and I don't know anybody that's really successful at anything who has hacked their way there. If you scratch below the surface, they've put in more time and more effort and more focus and more yeah. everything in order to get there. And so this idea that, hey, there's a shortcut, I just haven't found it yet. That's why people end up trying 20 diets because there must be a magic one somewhere. But we all know that losing weight is a function of taking in less calories than you burn. And if you do that, <clears throat> you will lose weight. Maybe not as fast as you want. There are differences in physiology and biology, but you will lose weight. There isn't a magic diet. There isn't a magic anything. The magic is in the effort and the time and the determination to say, you know what, I'm going to hang with this. And okay. so, Two weeks. <clears throat> if it's worth, if it's big enough of a goal that you've decided you want to put the effort into it, then it must be big enough that you can say, I'll at least give this two weeks. And if you can't give it two weeks, then you probably don't want to do it anyway. Yeah. So don't even try. Yeah. I know that seems cold, but it's true. Don't no, it try. is true. It is true. And the kick to boost to self esteem is worth it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's, you know, I, I, I guess I'm probably coming across like I think I'm this highly successful person who's figured out everything and I haven't figured out anything and I'm not, I'm successful in a variety of things, but I'm not world-class in anything and that's okay. Mm. But I like the fact that I've achieved some things that I didn't think I could achieve. And that's my measuring. It's let me compare myself to me. <laughs> and mm. if I'm a better me today than I was tomorrow, if I've done something today that I didn't think I could have done yesterday, that's a really cool thing. And that's all you need. Yeah. And that is a perfect place to wrap it up, Jeff. 
uh, on a high note because it, it is of fundamental importance to all of us that we're able to motivate ourselves, motivate ourselves to get through those difficult uh, scenarios in life and also to achieve our, our own ultimate goals. Uh, Jeff, the, for, for, for people who are listening in, the book is The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win. You can get that on Amazon and all good retail stores online, anywhere. Uh, I would give it a five-star review. It is an excellent book, and it really get you to think about your own life and about where you want to take it and what you need to do in order to get there. Jeff, if people want to get in contact, you know, I always ask people, Jeff, if people want to get in contact with, you know, where do they go? I think that's an easier one with you. Just go on LinkedIn. But is there a website you have that you want people <laughs> yeah. to go to? Yeah, they just I write for Inc. Magazine. It's Inc.com. So if you go there and you want to read some of the stuff I've written, just search my name. And there's about 1,500 articles. But the easy way, if you actually want to connect with me in some fashion, just go to LinkedIn. And, and I'm there. And I actually do respond to people. I Sometimes it takes me a few days. Um, but if, if you have a question or a comment or just want to say hi or anything else, then I always respond. So. Jeff, it's been a fascinating conversation, and I really, really uh, valued your time, your expertise, and your insights. Thank you very much for being my guest today.